You should be here. I feel like we should have had a chair for Alex. Of course, we don't have enough food, but... I know this is all so familiar, and I, I love you all so much. I know that sounds gross, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. I feel like I was at my best when I was with you people. Seven college friends reunite after one member of their group commits suicide. Special guests Carol Abramson and Rochelle Brief, our moms, join us to talk about enlisting in the Peace Corps, Jeff Goldblum's shtick, and what Billy Joel taught us about New York City nightlife. Then we find out if the big chill stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special Mother's Day episode of The Test of Time. I'm Alan Noah, and I am joined by my mom, Carol Abramson. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited. And joining us, we have two briefs. That's right. I'm James Brief, joining you as always, Al. And with me tonight is my mother, Rochelle Brief. The senior brief. Hi, guys. At his mother's home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we're both in our mom's homes, uh, which is, I think, the first time we've ever done an episode not in my house or your apartment, James. That's true. This is the first uh, on-location episode. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this is the perfect occasion to do that, for us to go out of our comfort zones and to bring our moms on the podcast because, you know, it's uh, Mother's Day or almost Mother's Day. And this was something that I wanted to do for a while. And then, you know, COVID kind of got in the way. But this is really, really exciting. So, Mom, welcome. Uh, Rochelle, welcome. Is it okay if I call you Rochelle? Should I call you Dr. Brief? Of course, of course. We are honored to be here today to celebrate Mom's Day and honored that you asked us. Yes, we are. Al, uh, you've never asked if you should call me Dr. Brief. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and I never will. Uh, <laughs> you and I are friends from a million years ago. I don't need to formally address you as Dr. Brief. This will be an informal talk then. We're all friends here. Okay, no, no need for, for formal titles. Uh, but let's start the conversation with just how we came to the big chill. Rochelle, I'll, I'll ask you first. What's your experience with this movie? Is this a movie that means a lot to you? Well, it speaks to me. I think I'm about the same age as the characters were at the time that the movie was filmed. I'm a college student of the late 60s, of the Woodstock era. And uh, in the 80s, in the early 80s, when the film was made, I was also in my mid early mid-30s, uh, beginning a career, starting a family. So the uh, film speaks to me directly. I feel like I could have been one of those characters. And do you remember seeing the movie when it first came out in 1983? I don't remember specifically where I was with my husband, although I'm sure it was with my husband, but we saw it when it first came out. We heard it was a very hip movie. <laughs> and... Mm -hmm. um, 
the music was our music. It was our generation music. And I remember seeing it and running out and buying the soundtrack. We, we have the album of The Big Chill. And James even mentioned it to me. He remembers me playing it all the time. That's what you said. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> yeah, I, right? I said the same thing. We had, I think it might have been the cassette version or it was the vinyl. I'm not sure, but it was definitely one of those. And I'd heard of this film. I knew exactly two things about this film. I knew that the soundtrack was famous and I knew that it was like the 30s movie. It's like if there's a movie about like college partying and then there's a movie about retiring and then this is the movie about 30 something. And I also knew there was a suicide there. That's all I knew about this film. Carol, what about you? Had you seen this film before? Yes, I had seen it when it came out, but also I don't really remember seeing it. And a few years ago, we watched it. And I think I liked it better then than I did this time. Oh, Oh, we'll have to unpack that. That's interesting. <laughs> well, Al, what about you? Had you ever seen this film? Because I had never seen this film. Like I said, I just heard of it. But what about you? Is this the first time? Yeah, this was the first time I'd ever seen the movie. I remember that you had the soundtrack. I want to say I remember it on CD, which if that's true, then that means you bought it later on, you know, in the 90s yeah. or whatever. I remember seeing that in the car, but I'd never watched the movie and it's interesting that uh, it's written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, who, James, you and I know as the writer of Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Force Awakens, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's done a lot of like big movies that we love as a writer. He hasn't directed a ton of movies. This was, I think, the second movie that he directed. He had done a film before this called Body Heat. That was quite uh -huh. a hit. Uh, he's done a couple uh, westerns, uh, Silverado and Wyatt Earp. So he is famous. I remember him doing a very serious film with Steve Martin called Grand Canyon. I'm sure we'll get to that someday. I know him as a very, like, he's an artsy filmmaker. I mean artsy more as like, like more dramas and stuff. Right. And, you know, he's written some huge blockbuster movies, you know, um, some of the Star Wars movies that have been some of the biggest box office hits of all time. Which is interesting that he directs such different films. Yes. Because we were talking about the soundtrack, I mean, these songs are definitely songs from your youth, I guess, right? Yes, absolutely. Is there a favorite that you have on there? Uh, I would say all of them. I love them all. <laughs> and there were two soundtrack albums. There was like uh, songs from the Big Chill, and then they released like a second one, like more songs from the Big Chill later. How about you, Rochelle? Were there any that you loved? Well, I liked the Motown. I liked, uh, I heard it through the grapevine, Marvin Gaye, and um, Ain't Too Proud. In fact, uh -huh. there was a uh, Broadway play, I think, a year or two ago, Ain't Too Proud, which was based on Motown. I also liked the opening numbers, Joy to the World, you know, Jeremiah was mm -hmm. a bullfrog, and um, right. Whiter Shade of Pale. Uh, it yes. reminds me of college. And um, what you remember of it? <laughs> yeah, was that a drug joke? 
No, me? No, not me. <laughs> oh, God. Not in my no. crowd. Not my crowd. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this soundtrack is that probably one of the biggest songs on this, in the movie at least, is uh, the Rolling Stones, and they have uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want. And that's not on the soundtrack. It's not on the, like, more music soundtrack. I'm sure this is some kind of music rights thing. You know, it's funny that you say that. I assumed that the reason it wasn't on there is because it's a long song. And, you know, by having it on there, that could take the place of two shorter Motown songs or whatever. But it was actually a rights thing. I was reading uh, in the trivia today. They got the rights for it to be in the movie, but not on the soundtrack because of whatever reason, you know, the Rolling Stones said no to that part. Uh, but yeah, it, it is like a an important yeah. song in the movie. Not my favorite Rolling Stone song. No, but it was good for the movie. Yes, 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 definitely. I think it also speaks to one of the themes of the movie. You can't always get what you want because these characters were idealists of the 60s and then they wound up being very middle class. So... What they really wanted in college never panned out to be what they were in the uh, 80s. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, I think you're right. No, yeah. they, they definitely have that feeling of, of but, guilt. Uh, you see that sometimes in the 80s. Uh, Al, for, for our generation, I knew it as uh, in family ties. The parents were like hippies and and their son was like a Reagan Republican. So like the parents right. were like, oh, we thought we were going to win out. And now it's you guys. I think that definitely is like a big theme of the movie, you know, is how these characters started as these young idealists and then they lost that passion for making the world a better place. And that's what the the title means. You know, the big chill is, is this chilling of their hearts and their idealism and their goals of making the world a better place. Is that something that, that you can relate to, like as a, you know, fellow? Oh, absolutely. I can relate to that, but I thought the big chill was just being dead. I think that's one <laughs> of the meetings. Okay. And it's a metaphor. Okay. Yeah, I assumed it to be more of that difference between from early 20s, at least in American life, is kind of a late adolescence. And then this is like the, whoa, somebody died. And, uh, you know, not even just like, whoa, what a terrible car accident, like, you know, this is a, an adult thing. And, and I guess that, that's what I thought the big chill was. It can mean anything to anyone, man. Or it could be the temperature well, you feel when, uh, <laughs> you know, when I say, hey, Al, it's time for a test of time episode. And I get a big chill of excitement? Exactly. Oh, okay. Or it could be what Kevin Klein felt running around in those teeny little shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was the style at the time. I guess. You know, I guess uh, for people like Al and I who haven't seen this film, uh, this movie is about a group of 30-something college friends who reunite after Alex, a member of their group, commits suicide. In this group, there's Sarah and Harold Cooper. They're the people that host the group over the funeral weekend. Sam, he's a television actor who's estranged from his daughter. Meg is a former public defender who's single, but very much wants to be a mother. Michael, he's a journalist for People magazine who wants to open a nightclub. Nick is a disillusioned drug addict veteran, and Karen is in an unfulfilling marriage. There's also Chloe, Alex's younger girlfriend. And as the group mourns the death of their friend, they also mourn the death of their youth and innocence, which you might call 
like the temperature of your Slurpee, the big chill. (laughs) (laughs) So when the movie came out in 1983, James, you and I were four years old, or I guess maybe three, depending on when it came out in 1983. I was four, you were three. (laughs) Oh, it was in between. It came out September 30th, 1983. Okay. Oh okay. Almost, almost on your birthday. Yeah, and uh, it opened at number one with three point six million, and it was a big hit. It wound up making fifty six million dollars. Wow. That wow. is like a seventeen times multiplier. This was a very cheap movie to make. There were no explosions, no sets. Um, it was basically filmed in a house and on the property. And the um, actors were really not that well known. They were just starting their careers. Glenn Close, it was one of her first movies. Kevin Costner, you know, he wasn't in the movie ultimately, but I think it was the first time he ever it casted. So it was a pretty inexpensive movie to make, and that makes the profits even greater. Yeah, it's always exciting seeing a film like this and you get to see like what a completely different looking Glenn Close or uh, Jeff Goldblum. I mean, he to me is so baby faced in this film. Uh, Rochelle, you mentioned Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner plays Alex, but right. his scenes were were cut. I read that like you can kind of sort of see his face in one shot when he's like in the casket in the very beginning. I completely didn't notice I miss that too. Like you see them dressing the body, but you never see the face. And the movie was supposed to end with a scene of Alex and his friends when they were in college, like a flashback where you got to actually see Alex and they didn't uh, end up using that. And I think it kind of works better without it. I think the fact that Alex is just a memory in this movie works to the movie's advantage because... He's gone. He's gone for for these characters, and it makes sense that he would also be absent for the movie. I kind of like that. Hmm. No offense to Kevin Costner. I'm sure he did a good job in that scene, but, you know, I, I think the movie works better. I agree completely. Um, You know, they say early on in the film that he died. And, you know, they actually don't even say he committed suicide yet. It's a slow introduction to, like, what happened. But but you sort of fairly quickly learn that he seems to have slit his wrist in the bathtub. But there's no suicide note. Now, this was going to be a modern film or, like, a modern, like, the Netflix shows, 13 Reasons Why. I was like, oh, they're going to find out why he did it. And they're going to come to some conclusion about, you know, life is great or life is terrible or something about they're so sad about with the pain Alex had no they really don't go into Alex you're or, exactly right it's about the friends the uh, center of discussion and there's a lot to talk about the fact that Kevin Costner was not in the movie or left a suicide note gives them a lot to discuss because it's he's a mysterious character and you have to discuss motives for why he died So I thought that was wonderful that he was not included. I think the lack of a suicide note is better because of that reason. You know, like these characters are trying to understand why he did what he did. And I actually meant to Google it and I forgot to. But I do wonder like how many times when people commit suicide, they do leave a suicide note. If that's a thing that's fairly common or if it's a thing that just happens more in movies and TV shows and people really don't do it very often. I don't know. I, I mean, I can think off the top of my head that Kurt Cobain left a suicide note. I can't think of any others 
right now. But in a movie or a TV show, it can kind of be like a narrative cheat, you know, like this is why this person did this thing as opposed to letting these characters talk about it and think about it and debate it and never know. They will never know because of course they won't. I think that's a strength of the movie. Um, Just getting back to like this group of friends that's all together, is that something that you could relate to? Like, you know, a tight-knit, close group of friends? Yeah, especially sharing their college experience. I mean, I went to a commuter school, so I didn't have that as much as you who went away and, you know, you're in your fraternity and being away, I think, because it's your first time away from home, you really need the bond of, of friends. Right. Where I was just traveling back and forth every day. So I didn't have that kind of closeness, but um, I can relate to it. Yeah. I actually knew someone who could have been in that movie, and James knows him too. We have a, a friend named Fred. He went to school, uh, got a MSW, worked for dollars and his father kept begging him to come into the antique business forget the social work you know it's not you're not going to pay your rent with the social work he quit social work he became a very lucrative antique dealer with pieces in the five figures very successful wow. so he could have been like um what was the lawyer's name meg Mary i Kate think Place. Meg, Meg, right? Who started yeah. out as a lawyer, as a public defender, and then just gave it all up and became a lucrative, affluent real estate lawyer. So they evolved. So I do relate to that. And I also knew a lot of women who did not work, got engaged their senior year, and went into hapless marriages like... Uh, Mary Jo Williams. The Karen character, right? Jo, the Karen. Jo Beth. Jo, jo Beth. Beth Williams. So, right. yeah, I do relate to a lot of these characters. But now I think it's important to note that you, Rochelle, after leaving college, you became a doctor. You know, <laughs> Mom, you were a special education teacher. So unlike these characters who sort of abandoned their principles of wanting to do something meaningful and they just decided to sell out, basically, you both didn't do that. Like, you both contributed to the world and have made the world a better place. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, mainly by raising James and I, um, <laughs> but also in your careers, too. Yeah, we had the we had the best of all worlds with kids and careers. <laughs> but actually, Sarah, uh, Glenn Close did that. She was a doctor. Yeah. I thought that they was never unusual. Said what kind of doctor. That's true. Yeah, she she does have a meaningful job, and they don't ever say what kind of doctor. No. That that's true. I think she's really the only person who has like a real helping the world kind of a job. Well, what about uh, Harold? Well, he has a uh, he, yeah he he sells sneakers. So I mean that helps people who need <laughs> sneakers, I guess. But you know, it's not the the liberal ideals of the the hippie movement of you know like we're going to change the world man kind of a thing i will say i always wanted to join the peace corps you did oh i wanted to so bad but i, I did not know yeah. that yeah. that's very interesting oh, it sounded like so fascinating i think that was common in our generation because yeah. we were 
We grew up in the Kennedy era. Exactly. Kennedy started the Peace Corps, and it was very romantic. And exactly. he, we all idealized Jack Kennedy and, and his wife, uh, Jackie Kennedy. You know, he was our hero. And mm-hmm. the Peace Corps was, was Such the beginning of, yeah, the beginning of <laughs> enlightenment and saving the world. Right. So I copped out by not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why, why didn't you do I it? I think just, you know, it was, it was an idea. It was a fantasy. Oh, gee, it would be really cool to do it, but I don't think I ever pursued it to the point of looking really into it. It was just, oh, that'd be so neat to do. It's not too late, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, honestly, like, I wonder what it must have been to actually back then to get into the Peace Corps. Where would you even go? Because today, you could be signed up to the Peace Corps in 10 minutes from now on your computer. (laughs) I'm, I'm almost positive you could probably fill out some kind of application within minutes, but you'd probably have to go to the library or post office or who who knows where you would even go for these things. It involved an effort. One of my high school (laughs) friends did join the Peace Corps, uh, Linda, and she went to Africa. Uh, She's actually a lifelong hippie, though. (laughs) She, um, She taught children English and uh, literacy. She really was true to her ideals. She's the only one I think I I remember who actually ever did anything like that. But that was our era. It's interesting how a lot of these people, even the successful ones, are not proud of what they're doing. Because the Tom Berenger character, I assume he's basically supposed to be Magnum P.I., that show, J.T. Lancer. Tom Selleck. Right. He's basically Tom Selleck. And he's, like, humiliated by the opening credits. And, you know, I I assume it's, you know, there's nothing of uh, real substance in, in those shows. But no one is fulfilled. Right. There's definitely this ennui with all of them, and they're all filled with despair. And I think part of it is that when he is in L.A. filming his TV show and he's got the groupies and the fans and everything, he's loving life. But when he's here among his closest friends, then he feels more vulnerable. Then he can let his guard down and then he could say, yeah, but I didn't really do anything when you're around the people who you know best and who know you the best, then you can sort of look at where you fell short. And also just because they all feel like they did fall short because their friend killed themselves. So that's allowing them to reflect more on their own lives because nothing makes you reflect on your life more than the death of someone else. I think he was also just embarrassed because these people did know him. He knew it was just a sham. So he felt embarrassed among these people who really did know him. Right. As opposed to the people who just worshipped him because he was a star. These people knew him before he was an actor. Right. Yeah, it's funny. He was saying, I knew when I used to do, and I I was some kind of a Shakespearean whatever, and now I'm doing this. Whereas 99% of the people in Hollywood, that would beg for the exact opposite thing. But it turns out maybe they wouldn't be fulfilled. Because obviously this guy is probably not hating the money he's making from being on a you know, number one hit show. But you know, he says little lines like, I try to put a little line in every episode. Like You can tell he's trying to like make excuses to his friends. Like, I know it's crap, but, uh, but I make sure there's a good line of dialogue in every episode. You do feel bad for him. And even John Hurt's character, when he was the psychologist on the radio... Was he actually helping people, or was he just a total sham? William Hurt. 
William Hurt, sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, but he was helping people because he helped Chloe. Chloe. And, you know, that is part of his disillusionment. And I actually, I thought he was like one of the most interesting characters in the movie. And William Hurt is great. And he's not in enough, I think. Like he, he he's, just died. He just died? Yeah, oh died. no! Okay, well then, I guess He's that explains why. Be in any <laughs> I guess not. Well then, let's dedicate the episode to, to him. him. Okay. Um, right. He he was in the Marvel movies. He was um, like one of the military guys in uh, right. in a bunch of those movies. But yeah. I thought he was really really good in this. He was good, he was good and actor. he also brought in Vietnam. That was such an important part of that era: the protests, uh, the anti-war movement. Um, and Martin Luther King, the peace movement. And he reminded us of Vietnam because he was a Vietnam veteran. And he alluded to the fact that he was disfigured um, Mm -hmm. and I think impotent without going into details, which I thought was nice. You know, it left it to to the imagination. But um, even he was a little bit of a cop-out. He was in a drug haze, it seems, during college. And now he's making money as a drug dealer. And two things about him that I wondered about. Number one, if he was in college, unless they got to his number, he, he might have volunteered to go to Vietnam because he would have gotten a deferment. Oh, yeah. And number two, if he was so miserable and he hated the cop and he didn't like being in the small town, why did he decide to stay afterward? Because of Chloe? Well, because he's found something there. He's found... What, Chloe? I don't think it's Chloe. Well, you really hate Chloe. Yeah, I don't get Chloe at all. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get her. You know, I thought there were two characters who did not fit. It was Chloe and also Richard, who was Karen's husband, the uptight businessman who was a jerk. He just struck me as he was a poor schnook that got stuck in a job he hated, but he was trying. A little bit. He was a real Reaganomics uh, conservative guy, and Chloe was just the opposite. She was kind of a ditzy, um, (laughs) clueless, immature girl. Everybody else had evolved from this idealistic era until more of a reality era. And these two were at the left end and at the right end of that group. Chloe is younger. I mean, she is not the same age as these other people. And so she does stick out. And Richard also sticks out because no one wants him there and he hates being there. And, and, you know, he leaves and it's fine. No one cares at all when he's gone. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that at the end of the movie, the William Hurt character, Nick, I think is his name, he doesn't stay because of Chloe. I think he stays more because of Harold and Sarah, Glenn Close and Kevin Klein, because he's so alone and he needs friendship. He needs people to kind of like tether him back. And even though they challenge him and they fight with him, I think he just can't be alone. That, that was the way I took it anyway. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I've mentioned this before on the podcast about how uh, we go out of our way. Please, uh, sir, soldier, ma'am, please board first and thank you for your service. But after Vietnam, people were not thank you for your service. It was, you know, right, you're outcast, they they call them, uh, whatever. You know, this guy was lonely. They were finally back with people they loved. This was nostalgic. 
And I think Sarah said at one point, I've never been happier in my life than with this group that I am in within now. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but they were just happy to be together. I think that's why Nick stayed. He was back among friends. He could be himself. Everyone could be themselves. Nick said when he was getting very mad at them at the end, like, oh, this is stupid. And Alex was already dead to us anyway, because we hadn't spoken to him in a couple of years. And we knew each other a long time ago for a short time. And he said it cynically, but I actually saw it the other way. And that's like, they only knew each other a short time. And yeah, this is the most important relationship they've ever had, including one person whose husband is, you know, there for half of the uh, half the film. She's easily cares more about this group of friends than her husband. Well, I mean, look at you and I, James. I mean, we were friends in college from 1998 to 2001 or 99, I guess, was probably when we met. Yeah. And we've stayed close. We're still friends all these years later. Our friends Darren and Mailer and Uri, like we connected then and we are still friends. I'm still very, very close with all of my friends from high school. And yeah, you can be cynical about it of like, yeah, all right, so what? You were friends like a million years ago. Who cares? But these relationships are important and they are meaningful and they can last a lifetime. And I think the the conversations that you see in this movie, they are sometimes brutal and like really tough. And these people are really hard on each other. And sometimes you can understand why there would be that cynicism of like, you don't know me. We were friends a million years ago. But no, that's the kind of friendship that like, people need. You need someone who's going to tell you that your nightclub is a bad idea. You know, the Jeff Goldblum character wants to open a a nightclub that's going to rival Elaine's. And any casual acquaintance would say, oh, neat. Okay. But, you know, you you kind of need a a real friend, a real good friend to look you in the eye and say, and how is that going to work? Like, that's what real friends do is, is they challenge you and that comes with time. You build those relationships up slowly. But a lot of times they weren't able to talk directly to each other. They had to videotape it or whatever it was then. Yeah. They had to use the recorder. And that was the way they were able to communicate rather than just talking directly to each other. Yes. Which that I was, found interesting. That was interesting. I I thought that was a little bit of a weird device in yeah. this movie. Yeah. It was. And I was definitely thinking, you know, a very test of time era thing. I was just talking with someone recently about uh, high school reunions, and I had a 10-year reunion. I went, and apparently there was a 20-year. I heard, like, under 40 people went. And I just think, you know, in our era, honestly, like, even people you're not interested in, you kind of can hear about them. And even if you have a fleeting thought of, oh, whatever happened to that uh, biology teacher, you can just go to Google and you find out what happened to them or that they passed away or, or whatever happened to the track star. So... I feel like there's something different today than here because a lot of these people, for some of them, I don't think they've seen each other since college or maybe, you know, the year after they went to homecoming or something. But some of these people, I don't think they've spoken. And there's implications that Nick was saying, like I alluded to earlier, that for all intents and purposes, Alex had been already dead for for some of us because, yeah, they hadn't even spoken anymore and they had drifted apart. So it's different. I I just kept thinking about like, oh, well, you know, today you would just 
you just send someone a, a text or an email or even just a tag them or, or something stupid. You know, it'd be so easy to get back in touch with someone today. Yeah. At the very end of the movie, they talk about like, we'll write. I'm not good about writing, but I'll write. What's your address? And they don't mean email address. <laughs> they mean, you know, writing a handwritten letter to someone's physical address. And yeah, now you can stay in touch more easily with social media. And yeah, social media is evil and has lots of problems and maybe is going to destroy uh, democracy. But it is nice because you can use it to stay in touch with friends. And, you know, some of my high school friends I talk to all the time. Some of them I don't. But I still know what they're up to. I still know what their kids are doing. I still know when they go on vacation and how they're doing with work and stuff like that because of Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and all of that stuff. So it is a little bit easier to keep tabs on people. Of course, keeping tabs on someone isn't the same as really connecting and communicating and being a true friend with someone. When I've been to funerals and, you know, as you get older, inevitably there are more of them. But one of the things you see is, is a reunion of friends and there's some nostalgic parts to it. And when you say goodbye, you say, let's meet on happier occasions. We shouldn't only meet at funerals. We should get together at weddings. And in fact, um, our daughter is getting married, as you probably know. Yes, Mazel sister. Tov. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so she's getting married in August. I'm inviting my elementary school friends. How great. <laughs> yeah, actually, my two best friends in elementary school um, our, our guys, you know, one lives in Boston, one lives in Philadelphia. I spoke to both of them in the last couple of days. They're both coming with their wives. How and great. we've decided that we're getting together for good occasions now. And we laugh. And I mean, it's not like the big chill, but we talk about all the characters in our high school, what became of them, how the, um, how the nerds became the successful ones and the popular <laughs> and the popular guys in school became the losers um, <laughs> it's you can't always get what you want <laughs> but if you try some time you just might find you get what you need, need. <laughs> ooh you should license that but not for a movie only for a soundtrack album yeah there is something to that you can't only be with people when it's a sad, tragic circumstance. Like that isn't a great way to only interact, you know, like there, there has to be like this balance of joy in there, you know, joy to the world. Jeremiah right. was a bullfrog. Bullfrog. <laughs> well, speaking of joy, the end of the film, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a laugh out loud ending, but there's definitely some, uh, resolution at the end. There's a subplot with Meg. She's successful, but she very much wants to be a mother. And there's almost this comical thing going around, uh, this little subplot of the film over the weekend. Sam might be a good father, and Michael, he's Jeff Goldblum's character, he volunteers to be the father, <laughs> and she turns him down. No, thank you. <laughs> but right. at the very end, the ideal situation, which is 
not orthodox, but uh, Harold and Sarah, they decide that um, Harold should be the father of Meg's child. And it sort of has to do with the fact that Sarah, turns out, had had an affair with Alex mm-hmm. years earlier. They all got through it, but I, I think maybe this was like a to way even of... the score. Even the score will maybe also make everything better. I don't know. The thing with Sarah and Alex and their affair... I thought that that was interesting, and I wish they had done maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit more with that. I was thinking about the movie after I watched it, and they do all of these different pairings of, you know, this character talking to that character, and then that one talks to this one, and, you know, there's bad blood and romance and whatever between the different friends. They never pair off Sarah and Chloe. And I thought that would have been a really interesting conversation because Chloe was Alex's girlfriend and Sarah and Alex had had a relationship. I don't know if they ever say how many years ago, but some time before this movie. And that could have been an interesting conversation. Was there resentment? Was there joy? I I don't know. Like I feel like that was something that they could have explored a little bit. Maybe that conversation just happened a long time ago because Chloe was living with Sarah. I think Chloe was a four month did they say she was yeah, a four month four girl yeah. girlfriend? So she was fairly recent. I don't know that Chloe knew that uh Alex had had an affair with Sarah. I'm not sure. Mm. Probably not. I don't think she knew Alex that well, honestly. She right. didn't know much. <laughs> you really hate Chloe. I just found her just annoying. Yeah. She was laughing and giggling at the funeral. Yeah. yeah, and her big thing was she couldn't ride in the limo up front. I mean, she was a child. She right, was a right. Child. She yeah. she was very naive, and I. But I I was amazed by what she could do with her body. The contortions. Yes, my God. <laughs> Especially now that we're older. Right. <laughs> And she always talked indifferently when when referring to Alex. It was just kind of like uh, this guy, not like the guy who just slit his wrists that you were dating. Oh, yeah. Like it, it's, it's totally, it, yeah, it's like blah, 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 whatever. And, you know. Yes, the, without the f- emotion. Exactly. And yeah. she, she talked about, oh, we made love that day or the day before. So he went out with a bang, they said. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I really wasn't expecting us to, to talk about this on our Mother's Day episode, but okay. <laughs> Um, I think, though, that she's dealing with the grief in a way that is weird and, you know, not conventional. They even say it in the movie, like every time someone brings up Alex, someone else changes the subject or someone makes like a dumb joke or whatever. And I think that is realistic. You know, I think Mm. that it can be hard to confront these things head on and, you know, like really talk about it. And the conversations that they have about Alex in the movie are not always very deep. And they're kind of, yeah, they're they're superficial until the end of the movie when they really kind of unpack everything. And that's just how people deal with it. When I'm dealing with something sad and I don't want to talk about it, I make a stupid joke. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of that. You deflect and yeah, Chloe is bad at this, but also, yeah, she's so young, you know. And also only four months. Right. What kind of relationship is that really? That's true. And that's why she sticks out. Exactly. But were they implying that because they found the, uh, the article written about how he was upset that he didn't take whatever position he could have taken and he didn't, 
some kind of uh, fellowship or whatever. Was, right. Were they implying that it was that that set him over the edge? I don't think so. And that that's a good point. Yeah, because at the end of the movie, uh, I think it's Nick who's going through his papers and he finds this article that Michael wrote about him right. uh, and I guess was published about his buddy from college, which is a little bit weird, right. but whatever. Yeah, that, that he didn't take this uh, prestigious fellowship. I don't know really what that what means. the point was there. Yeah. yeah. At first, I thought that it was going to be that he found a suicide note, and I was going to be disappointed by that <laughs> because of what we were saying earlier, that the movie's stronger without that. But I guess it was just that he was connected to his old friends. Yeah, I think um, Meg at one point also said that she felt very, very guilty because the last time she was with Alex, they had an argument, right. and she told Alex, you're wasting your life. And then he kills himself. So she felt very bad. You know, everybody else had conformed. They had gone from their idealistic lives to practical, to reality. And um, he just couldn't conform. And she said, you're wasting your life. I love that scene with Richard earlier, the cold uh, husband of Karen. And he's just in the kitchen one night. It was like the first night there. He's just uh, (laughs) eating a sandwich. And he was not trying to be mean. But, I mean, this is the group of friends whose friend just killed himself. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, the guy was too weak, obviously. Couldn't cut it. And like, oh, my God, like maybe if this guy wants to tell his coworkers who have never met, he can say his own wrong ideas about it. But wow, I thought that was a great scene to show how totally clueless he was. And he wasn't saying it in a mean way either. That's the thing. He was just like, this is my opinion, as he's chomping on a bologna sandwich. <laughs> I like that character in terms of I hated him, but, but I, right. I, I liked him in, in the movie. Completely cold. It's a thing I sometimes say to my kids a lot of just like, read the room, understand the people that you're talking to and their frame of mind. And he is not reading the room at all. And he can't say that because he's new to this group. He's never met any of these people. He never met Alex. So he's not allowed to say it. When Meg said to Alex, you're wasting your life, she kind of is allowed to say that because they're old friends and they have this rapport and they have this Mm -hmm. shared history. So... It's like those harsh conversations that a really good friend will have with you. Sometimes they say things that you need to hear, but then if someone kills themselves after you said that, that guilt will be with you for the rest of your life. And it's a fine line of what you say and what you don't say and when to bite your tongue and when to hold your peace and how you say certain things, which is a lot of like what... uh Michael says in the movie, you know, the the Jeff Goldblum character is he's pontificating about being manipulative is what everyone does. It's just how you say it and how you do it and blah, blah, blah. I mean, some of that's bullshit, but also some of that is true. And I think that is relatable. Even if you didn't have a friend from college who killed themselves, anyone who's lost anyone after they die, you think, What was the last conversation I had with this person? What did I say to that person then? Everyone has felt that, I assume. Yeah, and uh, you try not to wait till funerals to to be reminded of that. Well, I just thought this was a fantastic cast. They call this an ensemble cast, I think, when Mm -hmm. there's no main character and supporting actors. They just all work together. 
um, like the Three Amigos, you know, was an ensemble cast too. But uh, <laughs> of a, of a different very sort different of movie. film, right? Different, <laughs> but it worked in both of them. And they were so young. My God. <laughs> yes, sexy Jeff Goldblum was a meme from Jurassic Park. You never saw that. No. You, you oh, don't know yeah. what a meme is. I know what a meme is, but I, I always thought it was really weird looking. And I just, I said when we were watching it the other night, he, he's one of those that gets a little bit better as he ages. Okay. Like the other one is um, Donald Sutherland, who was really weird looking when he was young, but he's he filled out a little more. He's, he's still weird looking, but better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, I mean, there's a few like that. And he... He was sexy. I never really found him all that sexy, but that was a thing in Jurassic Park when he's like shirtless that like people thought he was sexy. He was almost playing like the same type of character. Very didactic and like he's almost not acting because that's always the role he plays. Yeah. And even those commercials he does now. Right. Probably like finding rentals. He's doing the same thing. That's his shtick. Oh, he's yeah. doing his whole shtick. And, you know, yeah. a lot of these actors have stood the test of time. Right. But, Especially Glenn Close. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. L- l- let me ask you this question, Mom, Dr. Brief. Um, does 1983's The Big Chill, do you think this film stands the test of time? It does. To me, it does. It certainly does. And I think... Everybody, no matter what era you grew up with and when you have a reunion years later, there's always nostalgia for your childhood and nostalgia for your old friends. You think about how great it was to be in college, have no responsibilities. The worst thing was your um, you know, chemistry exam or your English paper that's due in two days. That was your worst responsibility how easy life was, and uh, there's nostalgia for that, which I think this movie is about, and that doesn't go out of style. And also, the good old days for every generation is different, and they weren't so good. You just remember the good parts of them. And that's what the music brings back. Yeah, and the music was fantastic. So to me, (laughs) it certainly does stand the test of time. I saw it in 83, which is almost 40 years ago, And now, I liked it as much now as then. I don't know if anyone else will agree with me. Well, let's find out. (laughs) Yeah, I want to ask you, Mom, if you think the movie stands the test of time. Because you said that you thought you liked it a little bit less this time. Yeah. I kind of thought that what was really the best part of it was the soundtrack. Really? Yeah, as opposed to the plot. I was like, well, it didn't really seem to go anywhere. I just felt like... Without the soundtrack, I don't know that I would have enjoyed the movie as much. Really? Yeah. Interesting. That's how I felt watching it this last time. But I had, I wanted to ask you, Rochelle. There was one comment that was made that I figure went over both of their heads, the boys. Mm. And I figured you probably caught it. What was that? When, um, When he was telling him the insider trading tip about him selling the um, sneaker store. And then he told his wife, and she said, well, what are you going to do? Tell everybody in the world, who do you think you are? John Beresford Tipton? Oh, boy, yes. And you knew that. The millionaire, the millionaire. But you didn't, you guys didn't, right? Before Al and I made the Test of Time podcast, we almost made a podcast, a 12-part series about, what, what was his name again? John Beresford Tipton. John yeah, Beresford that guy. Tipton. That guy, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that was that show that ran from 1965 to 1970, right? No, 50s. I think it was in the 50s. Yeah. Oh, well, I looked it up before because I I did catch that reference. (laughs) Um, Maybe I got the years wrong. But they said that and I was like, 
what did Who? she just say? And then I wrote it down only because this podcast is the and test I of time. And I wrote it down because I figured, exactly, and I figured, oh, you would never know. That. And, but I figured you and I would know it, Rochelle. Yeah, but y- you know, <laughs> you're right. There wasn't much of a plot, but it was all conversations. It's like a little bit like Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing, but it's about conversations and friends and yeah. relationships and having fun and, uh, you know, foibles too. You know, it's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which Kasdan did, that had a, a real plot, an action plot. This was just conversations, and it was, to me, it, it seemed like real conversations mm. that I could have had. I especially like when they were dancing around the kitchen. Yes. I was thinking of uh, in and out because we just watched that movie with Kevin Klein dancing. Kevin Klein's funnier in that movie than he is in this movie, which is very serious. But there is some Kevin Klein dancing in this movie as well. <laughs> but you didn't say if you think the movie as a whole stands the test of time. Uh, yeah, I think it does. Because it is basically just about friendships. And that's always going to be. You're always going to have friendships. Some deep Especially like you said, you have really long-term, meaningful friendships. And I can relate to that part of the movie through you. I really don't have any friends going back to my school days. We just lost touch, and I really can't say that I have any friends from way back then. I relate to that through you. Okay. And your sister, she also. Yeah. Well, Al, what do you think? Uh, You know, your mother said the movie stands the test of time. What do you think? Do you think uh, The Big Chill stands up today? I do. I think that it really connected with me. I found it to be really relatable. And I think that even though it's about friends from the 60s and then they're in the 80s and it is very specific in that regard, it's also just very general. And it has all of these themes that anyone can relate to. It doesn't matter if you were in the Vietnam War. It matters if you know someone who has trauma. And it doesn't matter if you lost a friend to suicide. Everyone's lost somebody who's meaningful to them. And I can certainly relate in the fact that I have close friends from college. I have very close friends from high school. One of my best friends from high school passed away very young. And we do Nick's Marathon to celebrate Nick's life. We also get together every year to just hang out and be together because that's what Nick would have wanted. And he wouldn't have wanted this kind of thing where everyone drifts apart and you only see each other at funerals and sad occasions, like like you were saying, Rochelle. Like That was the opposite of what Nick wanted. Nick wanted all of us to be together and we all got together because of him when he was alive. And now we continue to do that uh, after he's gone. And and they say that about Alex, that, you know, Alex brought them all together in life and now he's done it again in death. And I certainly connected with that. And um, it was emotional. It, it, it's, um, it made me want to call a couple of friends after I watched this movie, uh, some people that I haven't talked to in a while and just say, hey, How's it going? Haven't talked in a while. Let's talk. So yeah, I I think the movie really works on every level. I really enjoyed it. Of course, the soundtrack is amazing. There was one random line that I wrote down that I wanted to mention because I think it does stand the test of time, even though it's not really related to, you know, the core of the plot. When they're all like talking and they're kind of having their, their big fight at the end of the movie, Nick says, I'm so sick of people selling their psyches for a little attention. 
And I think that line is way more relevant now than it was in 1983. That just makes me think of social media and people just putting all of their emotional baggage online just to get some likes, which is not at all what he was talking about in the movie. But I thought that line was really uh, especially resonant today. And also just, Mom, because you mentioned that one line, that that one guy from that TV show that went over our heads, they did mention Elaine's a lot. Yes. And I know Elaine's as a famous New York City restaurant mainly because of the Billy Joel song. He mentions it in Big Shot. (laughs) They were all impressed with your Halston dress and the people that you knew at Elaine's. Did you catch that, James? I never heard of Elaine's. Yes, that was big. big. Um, Yeah. Like I remember in the '60s, the Peppermint Lounge. Do you remember that? <laughs> that yes. was that was a hangout, which I went to one time, Whoa. and I actually <laughs> went there. We used to do the twist there. If yeah. you've ever heard of the twist, <laughs> the Peppermint Twist. <laughs> did Did you guys like hang out at these clubs like in the '60s? No, it would be very funny. I didn't that grow up prob- in New York. Probably some picture where they're, you know, if you could take a photograph of Studio Fifty Four at some point. You know? Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. We're not talking about Studio Fifty Four. That's the only club I know yeah, from no, that, no, like no. after the Cotton Club and before like Limelight, the Playboy Club. Yeah. You live in the city. You never went to Elaine's. It, it was around until fairly recently. I think it closed like ten years ago or something I like don't that. Know. No. Did you go to Elaine's, Al? No. <laughs> but you lived in the city. For a lot longer than I have. And I consider you to be a, a man about town who knows all of the New York City hotspots of now and yesterday, James. <laughs> well, obviously it closed, so it's not much of a hotspot. <laughs> well, sure. I think all the people who used to go there are all dead. <laughs> well, Elaine died, and that was yes, when it closed. Um, but James, do you think that The Big Chill stands the test of time? You know, th- this film was on my list of movies I always wanted to see. There's a lot of things I like about this film. Um, I guess in the 80s, there must have been this kind of cynicism about the maybe the failure of the 60s revolution. Or, or I mean, it, it succeeded in many ways. Because I would see this in a lot of films where, where there's people in the 80s and their characters in their 40s who are kind of reminiscing about the 60s. And why aren't we all like this anymore? And that show Freaks and Geeks where the guidance counselor, he's like, I became a guidance counselor to help all the kids, man. And all my friends became sad. Outs and they're on Wall Street. I've only seen this in a couple films, but it's very interesting because for Alan and I, we don't really know this era. 60s is all about Vietnam and Woodstock and, you know, Martin Luther King and civil rights. And you don't really get that aftermath of what happened to those people that were in those times that just went on to get regular lives. So I thought that was very interesting. I also really did like that this was not a film that. focused on Alex. I think that this was not the suicide mystery. We talked about this earlier. That's what the modern film would be. And I feel like if they remake this film, and this film could be remade. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but it could be remade with modern ideas. But I feel like they'd almost be so tempted to put a little mystery box in there when this film is not about the mystery of Alex's death. And they wisely don't go there because then it wouldn't be rewatchable because all right, I already know how he dies. And all right, now I figure out the mystery of he was in a, you know, a secret blah, blah, blah. 
But um, I like the film. I will say I didn't love the film because this was nominated for Best Picture and Best Screenplay. And I think all the actors were fantastic in it. I think it was very well done. I, I think I might have been a little bit expecting a little more, but I was pleased with the film. It's a good dialogue-driven film. N- nothing to do with uh, chills. So I do think that uh, the film does stand the test of time. Yeah. We're a four for four. Oh, with our moms yeah. for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's, Happy Day. Mother's Day. Mom, Rochelle, thank you for thank coming you. on the show. Thanks, Mom. And I, I love the Carol. film. I love doing this podcast. I'm just going to pitch this right now. Maybe you guys start your own podcast. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're really into podcasting, you know, James and I can help you with the equipment. You yeah, know. I'm so good with technology. <laughs> Oh, my God. You can invite us back next Mother's Day. I think that would work. Sure. Okay. Very good. Well, you guys can start thinking about which movie you want to do that. And I just do want to say, speaking of which film to do, my idea, instead of a 30s retrospective film about death and the the end of your adolescence— my idea was to talk about a talking pig film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Babe. I thought you threw that in just because you know I love pigs. I did. I, I we, we had an email <laughs> list going and I did put Babe on the list because, uh, yeah. yeah, my mom okay. loves pigs. 2023. <laughs> we could do that. Okay. <laughs> We've got, we got it. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right, Babe, that sounds great. But thank you again, Mom and Rochelle, for for joining us. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Nice meeting you, Rochelle. And nice to meet you. And we'll meet again, I hope, on a good occasion. (laughs) That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, I am very excited because we're going to be talking about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. That's right. Uh, In honor of the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series coming to Disney+, Plus, we're going to go back to the Star Wars prequels. I am very confident that we will have a lot to talk about as we do episodes one, two, and three. Yippee! (laughs) Meet all the people going to listen to the podcast, Eddie! (laughs) That was my really good Jar Jar impression. (laughs) Mom, what'd you think? Terrific. (laughs) Awesome. You're always so supportive, Mom. (laughs) Uh, Until then, of course, we want to hear from you at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we will see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. 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 We did it. We did it. Good job. Good job.